بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله وشكر لله We have reached Module 7.3 So Module 7 is all family law or what scholars would call Al-Ahwal Al-Shakhsiyya So personal family law And we're dividing this into five parts Marriage Followed by conflict and divorce Which we covered last week And then the rights of parents Followed by the rights of children and we close with family ties in general. So 7.3 looks at the rights of parents. And I initially thought to put the rights of parents after the rights of children, but the tartib should be as follows, parents, then children. And I thought to put the two of them together into one class, but I realized that's not possible. We want to do justice to both the parents and the children looking at their rights and responsibilities respectively. And inshallah, we'll close this module with a general look at family ties, which is meaning beyond our parents and children, looking at relatives and the notion of siratul rahim, or keeping family ties. So what we're talking about today is as a virtue and as something that is for us to know about now is one of those terms that many Muslims across different cultures and languages know can be translated as goodness towards one's parents a more classical translation would be filial piety that's the old English way we talk about being dutiful to one's parents filial piety and as you see here in the slide, the notion of filial piety forms a significant portion of the rulings in Sharia, or put differently, the rulings of Sharia, many of them aim at preserving those things that preserve family. We know that there are five broad objectives of the Sharia, what the ulama call the maqasid, the objectives, maqasid al-shari'a, and they follow a very particular order. So we have the preservation of deen as the number one priority and objective of Islamic law. Hifdud deen, followed by the preservation of life, followed by the pres preservation of intellect, followed by preservation of wealth, followed by preservation of family. Now the first couple are at the top of that hierarchy, but the others aren't necessarily at the bottom, right? So one person asked me years ago, we were doing a class on maqasid, and they said according to this ordering, if the preservation of the intellect comes before preservation of family, does that mean I can get rid of my kids if they're driving me crazy? And that's not how we understand this matter, but the point is that the Sharia 
aims at preserving these things. So filial piety, goodness to parents, the rights of, mother and of the mother and the father, the rights of children, the rights of our relatives, however that may come, uh, inheritance law, conflict resolution, all of these things go to right? preservation of one's lineage, as well as preservation of the family unit itself, because that is also a means of preserving the deen, of also preserving wealth, and preserving life, and so on. So, birul waridain, we want to mention a couple of verses of Qur'an and hadith to set the tone for this discussion. The Prophet ﷺ says in the hadith recorded by Al-Imam Al-Tirmidhi that the pleasure of Allah, Rid Allah, is in the pleasure of the parents. And the anger of Allah is in the anger of the parents. This is a very scary hadith. And according to Islam, filial piety, goodness towards parents, is fardu'ain. It is individually obligatory on every single Muslim. And this is established in the Quran, in the Sunnah, and ijma'ah. There is no doubt whatsoever that being good to one's parents, birrul walidain, is fardain. It's not a voluntary act of charity to be nice to our parents. It is fard. When we go to the Quran, we see very clearly the importance of filial piety. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَقَضَى رَبُّكَ أَلَّا تَعْبُدُوا إِلَّا إِيَّا وَبِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا In this powerful verse, Allah ta'ala says, Your Lord decreed that you worship none others besides Him, and that you be excellent towards your parents. So notice here that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions Worshipping Him alone, the command to worship Allah alone and no one else and nothing else. And He pairs right next to that command, the command to have ihsan, excellent treatment towards our parents. That shows you the gravity of birul walidain. The fact that Allah Ta'ala pairs it with tawheed itself. He pairs it with Worshipping him alone, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And notice he says, not being nice. He says, وَبِالْوَالِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا Ihsan, excellence, goodness, beautiful conduct. And in the hadith of the Prophet wasallam, mentioned in Bukhari, as well as At-Tirmidhi and others, the Prophet wasallam said to the companions, should I not tell you of the worst of the major sins, the worst of the mubiqat, those destructive, destroying major sins, the worst of them. And he mentions al-ishraq billah wa walidain. So he mentions two of the major sins, the worst of the major sins. He mentions al-ishraq billah, worshiping other than Allah. And uquq al-walidain. And uquq al-walidain is the opposite of birr al-walidain. If birr al-walidain means filial piety, uquq al-walidain means harming one's parents, disrespecting one's parents, going against one's parents in a way that is absolutely prohibited. 
So the, again, we see the Quran pairs the worship of Allah Ta'ala with Birrul Waridain. And in the hadith, the Prophet pairs shirk with Uququl Waridain. So you have the opposite here. This shows you the importance of knowing what it means to actually have Birr towards our parents and what it means to have the opposite. So, that's what we want to learn tonight, insha'Allah ta'ala. Now, the ulama mentioned that there's different types of bir. And we say bir means goodness, uh, piety, could be excellence, kindness, all of these things. But the ulama say that it takes on different forms. There's the bir of your speech, the bir of the heart, the bir of your limbs, what you do with your body, and the bir with your wealth, your money. All of these play a role in how you have to be towards your parents. And there are rulings and parameters for all of these. We start with speech, because after action, speech seems to be the area where most people fail in their treatment of their parents. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran that you should not say uf to your parents. Does anyone know what the word uf means in English? You know of, the, of a translation for this? Hmm? Is there a word in English for that though? So the old English word is fi, F-I-E, you know, lie, L-I-E, fi with an F. So I, this would mean, do not say fi to them. <laughs> that doesn't help, does it? So what does uf mean? What does fi mean? It's as you said. Uh, in Arabic, the word uf is the the lowest level of offensive speech you could say to someone. So if you look at offensive, rude speech as a, as a spectrum, on, on one side of the spectrum you have the absolute worst thing you could ever say to someone. On the other side of that spectrum you have oof, which is the least offensive thing you could say to someone, but which is still offensive. So I would suggest that oof would be a sigh, as you mentioned, or clicking your teeth, you know, and that sound people make. You know, these kinds of sounds when they're, they're bothered or they're annoyed at someone telling them to do something, for instance. You know, go clean your room. That's oof. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do not say oof to your parents. And from this, the ulama have extracted a rule. If it is prohibited to say oof, then it means every other form of offensive speech and behavior that's worse is even more prohibited. Min babi awla, even more so. Right? So... It's a tall order if you think about it because we get used to these kinds of words or these sounds when we get annoyed. So Allah says, don't say oof to your parents. 
In the next phrase, Allah Ta'ala then says, speak to them in an honorable way. Speak to them in an honorable way, in a good way. That's the opposite. So this is bir in speech, that we watch what we say, we watch our tone, and we have to be very careful with that. There's other details though. Can you give nasiha to your, fam- your, your parents? Let's say your mother is doing something she shouldn't be doing, or your father's doing something he shouldn't do. Don't you have a duty to give him advice? You care about him. So how do you give him advice with your words that conveys the advice, but without crossing into territory that's possibly uquq, that's possibly disrespectful? The ulama talk about this in some detail, in the question of can you, as a son or a daughter, command the good and forbid the evil uh, with respect to your parents? And you can give nasiha, the scholars say, but it has to be with humility. There is a statement mentioned from Imam Madik, rahimahullah, who says that the child should enjoin righteousness and forbid evil with his parents, and he should also lower the wing of humility with them. So lowering the wing of humility here, he's referring to a verse of the Qur'an where Allah tells children, that they should lower the wing of humility. Right? Lower for them the wing of humility. Now, you're a human being. Do you have any wings? So, in Arabic, this is an expression for uh, humbling yourself towards your parents and saying uh, a kind word uh, and being merciful to them. So, you can do both. You can advise them while also being humble, right? Imam al-Ghazali talks about this as well in his Ihya, and he says that the, there's only two ways you as a child can correct your parents if they're doing something wrong. He says, number one, the person has to teach them if they were unaware of the ruling about what they're doing. You know, let's say they're doing something prohibited or makru, and they don't know. so the child, son or daughter, would teach them and they would do so gently. So it goes back to what we said. It can be done, but it can be, has to be done with gentleness. The child, no matter what age they reach, has no right to ever use harsh words or curse their parents when they're trying to correct them. But we have no business doing that. And the scholars say that if in your correction you are afraid that you might start going into that territory of using harsh words to correct them, you have to leave it. And this is quoted from Imam Hassan al-Basri, one of the early generations of Muslims. He was asked about how a child should correct their parents. And he said he should admonish his parents as long as the parents don't get angry. But if the parents get angry, he has to be silent. Because now what's going on here? You have a command to command the good and forbid the evil. Is that command absolute or is it conditional? Tell me. It's conditional. It's not obligatory in every situation. There are certain conditions that have to be met for you to command the good and forbid the evil. But what about making your parents angry? Is that conditional? Generally, that's prohibited. 
So if you have to choose between commanding the good and forbidding the evil, uh, or getting your parents angry, are you going to choose commanding the good? Well, I should word that a little differently. Meaning you're doing one at the cost of the other. If that's going to happen, you stay silent. And, and I bring this up because the ulama, number one, talk about this. And number two, uh, we do have c- concern for our, our parents. And sometimes they may get things wrong. Maybe they're unaware of things. Maybe they're doing something wrong Islamically. We don't want to see them do something haram or blameworthy, but it's a very careful balance between advising them while also not overstepping our bounds when giving the advice. So this is all within the bir of speech and how we speak to them. Now, regardless, we're not going to raise our voices to our parents. Likewise, it is makru, disliked, to call them by their first name. Right, and by that I mean, you know, you find in the culture, uh, among some families, where the child will call the parent by their first name. Oh, hi Linda, I'm home. Linda is her mom. Hi Bob, I'm home. Bob is the father, and the son and the daughter refer to their parents with their first names. This is shameful. No one should do that. And generally, we don't accept that, and that's not really found in any Muslim culture. And that's an Islamic value, not to call your parents by their first name. And that endures for as long as they're your parents, which is forever, right? Another aspect of bir in speech is that we pray for their rahmah. We pray for their mercy. And this is based on the verse, uh, the verse we actually just mentioned, uh, the part of it which says, uh, and say, O my Lord, have mercy on, me, on them as they have raised me when I was young. And I know many of you from Pakistan, you've memorized this dua because your parents make sure you learn it, right? right? That's something we should do. Right? They should know that dua. So you say, Oh my Lord, have mercy on them as they have raised me when I was young. Now look at this verse. And say. What kind of verb is say here? It's an amr, it's a command verb. So from this we understand that it's an amr, it's a command. And the ulama say that if you make that dua for your parents once in your lifetime, you fulfilled the command. Provided you made the dua with the intention of fulfilling the command. So if you made it before as a general dua, that's good. But they say that you need to make it at least once in your life with the intention that you are fulfilling al-amrul ilahi, the divine command to pray for your parents. Some ulama go even further and they say, no, it's not just once in a lifetime you're going to make this draw for your parents. Some go as far as to say that from bir in speech towards your parents is to make dua for them, that Allah has mercy on them five times a day just like you pray salat. And this is mentioned because in the verse in the Quran, Allah says, and thank me and thank your parents. So parents are mentioned after the name of Allah again. The first verse mentions, Allah pairs the command to worship Him with the command to be kind and gentle and good to them. 
Likewise, Allah says, and thank me and thank your parents. So because Allah Ta'ala pairs his name with their name, to properly thank them will be similar in some fashion to how we thank Allah. The pro- to properly thank Allah, scholars say, is at least you're praying five times a day. That's your minimum expression of shukr every single day. Therefore, if that's the minimum expression of shukr to Allah, and Allah pairs his shukr with their shukr, some scholars say you should uh, ask Allah to have mercy on your parents five times a day, right? And this is, of course, ijtihad. But the idea is that to ask Allah to have mercy on them is important. It should be a part of our du'as for our family. Uh, As far as non-Muslim parents go, because there are a couple of us who uh, had or have non-Muslim parents, there's a difference of opinion about that. The, there is no difference of opinion about making dua for mercy and forgiveness after they pass away. That's not permitted. But making dua for their mercy while they're still alive, there's a difference of opinion about that. Uh, I take the view that it is permissible with the understanding that when you ask Allah Ta'ala to have mercy on your living non-Muslim mother or father, that mercy is guidance. So you're essentially asking Allah to guide them. That's what it means. Other aspects of bir in speech pertain to prayer. The ulama say that if a father calls the child while the child is in salat, praying a voluntary prayer, a nafila, the child, and this child can be an adult, right? The son or the daughter, if the father calls them while they're praying a nafila, they should speed it up. You shouldn't pray it at the same speed, nor should you lengthen it. You should speed it up if they're calling you. Imagine you're upstairs and you're praying a nafila, and your mother's downstairs and she calls you. You would speed it up a little bit. Why? Because you're going to answer her call. Well, actually, it's the father. If, you, if the mother calls you, it's actually more. <laughs> The father calls you, you speed it up. If the mother calls you, you you speed it up, but you also make the tasbih. This is what the ulama mentioned, at least in the Madiki works of jurisprudence. They say that if you are praying salat and your mother calls you, you say subhanallah, and that notifies her that you are praying, so she knows not to call you more and more and maybe get bothered by why isn't he answering right and then you speed up the prayer and respond to her call so that is bir of speech insofar as you say subhanallah and you respond to her or to him and there's a famous hadith of Juraj in Sahih Muslim we should study it's a very long hadith about a young man who was an abid a very devout worshipper and he got into a big mess, a big test, because he was lengthening his salat to the point of neglecting his mother. And he was making the dua in the salat, Ya Rabbi, salati am ummi, should I tend to the prayer or to my mother? To the point where she got upset, and it was a long, it's a long narration. Now, bir of the body. So we talked about bir of our words, our speech. Now we come to bir of the body. What we mean by that is the limbs, the jawarih. Now this is boiled down to a simple rule. Ta'a, 
obedience. Because obedience is using your body to listen to what they tell you to do. And we as Muslims are to obey our parents in everything they order us to do as long as what they are telling us to do is not haram and as long as it does not constitute a danger to ourselves or others. The Prophet Sallallahu says, لا طاعة لمخلوق في معصية خالق There's no obedience to the creation and disobedience to the creator. He says, إنما الطاعة في المعروف أو كما قال Obedience is only in that which is معروف So معروف means good, means wholesome. It means what is recognized as good. Alright? Now there's some details about this. Imam Abu Bakr al-Turtushi, he says that it's wajib, obligatory on the child to obey if the parents would be hurt if the order is not followed. So he's recognizing, as others did, that there is a distinction between what our parents tell us to do. If our parents tell us, can you move that glass of water and put it in the sink? And maybe we don't listen because we're distracted. And, or we procrastinate, and we put it off, and then we forget about it. Or, you know, it's one of those things that we put to the side. It doesn't happen. Did we obey them? We didn't obey them. But if it's known that this is one of those small things that happens at home, and it's not something that's going to really hurt them if we don't do it, then to not comply to that would not be seen as a major sin, right? It could be seen as a minor sin depending on the level of disobedience, but this is where we come back to that notion of urf, that families have a known urf. You didn't pick up that piece of lint on the floor. I told you twice to do it. They're annoyed, but it's not hurt or anger, you know? So, it doesn't mean that if they tell you to turn on the light switch and you don't within two seconds, you are in a major sin. There are parameters, there's guidelines here. Likewise, it's not a blank check for parents to tell the child to do things, even if those things are harmful to the child or harmful to others. Because the Prophet wasallam says in the hadith recorded by Ibn Majah, لا ضرر ولا ضرار. And this is an, a, a maxim in, in our law, that there is to be no harm or reciprocating harm. This means that you are not to harm anyone. Likewise, uh, you are not to uh, do something or tell someone to do something that will harm others, nor should you respond to harm. So this means that you can't tell your child to do something that's going to cause verifiable harm. You can't say, you know, I want you to learn how to be disciplined, therefore I command you to you know, walk barefoot in the snow for three hours or something ridiculous like that. Do you have to obey your parents in that kind of command? No, because that would bring verifiable harm to your body, right? Frostbite. So these are obviously things that are not within the parameters of obedience. A child is not required to obey an order that's harmful. Now the scholars talk about harm in more relevant terms by looking at examples 
when a person might be harmed in their personal life or family life if they listen to their parents. And the fuqaha give an example. They say if a child, and when I say child, I mean a, a grown person who has parents, if the child, the son or the daughter, in this case the, the son, if the son cannot find a source of income locally to take care of himself, so he's in the same town as his mother and father, but he's looking for work and he can't find any work. And he has a wife and he has children. He has dependents that he has to take care of. So let's say he's looking for work and he can't find it in his city. He can only find it out of town. So for him to fulfill the obligation of caring for his family, he has to travel out of town for work. He does not have to obey his parents if his parents tell him he can't take those trips to work because that would be a type of harm to him as well as a harm to his dependents. And the scholars, of course, mentioned that this is when the travel is to earn one's immediate needs, not to just get extra money, you know. We're talking about a situation where a person has no means of income and they cannot provide for their family or themselves except by traveling. To stay would bring harm to themselves, so there's no obedience in that case. Likewise, if the parents tell the child to do something that's uh, doubtful, and by doubtful we mean it's a gray area, right? The Prophet ﷺ mentions uh, avoiding the shubuhat, the doubtful gray areas. So if the parents tell the child to do something doubtful in sharia, the child will listen. And that is because the majority of their ulama uphold that avoiding doubtful matters is mustahab and not wajib. Because they're not clearly haram. They're just doubtful or they're questionable. Avoiding those doubtful matters is mustahab according to the majority of the fuqaha. Obeying your parents is wajib. So if you have to leave something that is mustahab to do something that is wajib, that's what you do. You don't uh, uphold something that's mustahab at the cost of neglecting something wajib, right? So it's a matter of prioritization. Wajib is always going to be more important than what is mustahab. Uh, something doubtful, I mean, doubtful was somewhat relative too, because what's doubtful to one person may not be doubtful to someone else. Um, but doubtful could be something where, you know, it could be a source of income, right? Uh, it could be, maybe it's a food ingredient, where maybe there's a question, there's a debate. Um, if this thing is doubtful and it's not clear-cut haram, then if the parents tell you to do that thing, then you do it because of avoiding the doubtful thing is mustahab, whereas doing, obeying the parents is wajib. Um, I can't really think of too many examples where that would happen, um, but it's one of the things that the fuqaha mention. You'll find that they're mentioning things that relate to what's makruh, to what's mustahab, to what's haram, to what's wajib, and to what's mubah. The five categories, the five ahkam sharia, the five legal rulings. So you'll see that in the other examples. If a parent orders one to perform an act of worship, 
it becomes wajib. So let's say it's duha time. Is duha wajib? The duha prayer, two or four rakahs? It's not wajib. It's not even a super high degree of sunnah. It's within the context of nawafil. But let's say your father one day, is, you know, that you're with your, your father, it's after fajr, the sun has risen, it's shining into your living room, you guys are relaxing, and he says, come on, let's pray duha. Maybe you didn't intend to pray duha. Maybe you want to go make a coffee. Duha is not wajib. But if your father says, go pray duha, you have to pray duha. Because obeying him is wajib, even if the thing itself is not wajib. Right? If they tell you to do something makruh, or to leave a non-obligatory sunnah, one must listen. So let's say you take the position that eating and drinking standing up is makruh. And you, I don't know how this would ever happen, but let's imagine one's father hands the, his son a glass of water and says, drink this right now. And he's standing up. And he wants to sit. He says, no, drink it standing. Does he say, no, father, I'm not going to listen to you because drinking standing is makruh. And the father says, no, I've told you to drink it standing up. The fuqaha say, in this case, you listen to your father. Because leaving something wajib is worse than doing something makruh. Right? So you have to bear in mind that there's a hierarchy in these rulings. Some things are more important than others. So between haram and makruh, if you do something makruh to avoid a haram, you do it. Right? So there's a whole hierarchy here. If they tell you to leave a non-obligatory sunnah, one must listen. So let's say you're about to pray duha, and your mother or father says, don't pray that right now, go do something else. You listen. Why? Because duha is not an obligatory sunnah. It's not one of the sunnan al-mu'akkadat, the highly emphasized sunnahs that one should not neglect. Right? And we'll get to those in a second. If they order one to leave something recommended, mustahab, the scholars differ and say it's either recommended to obey them or obligatory. This is the one gray area. So what's something recommended? What can you think of? A recommended mustahab action. Don't tell me sunnah prayers because those have a different category. Something recommended. That's a good one. Charity. Open-ended sadaqah. So not zakat, which is obligatory, but sadaqah, which is mustahab. You want to give sadaqah to someone. Your father says no. What do you do? This is where the ulama differ. Some say it's recommended that you listen to your father and not give it. Others say it's wajib on you to listen to your father and not give it. But either way, it's tilting towards listening to your father if he tells you not to do something that is ordinarily mustahab. All right. Why would he say that? That's not what we're looking at here. We're just looking at scenarios to get an understanding of how the scholars looked at birrul waridain. Uh, some of the ulama say that 
the parent's order raises the status of the action. So that means something that is mubah. So what is mubah? It's neutral. So let's just do a brief recap. The ahkam, the five legal rulings, wajib is obligatory. What comes next? Mustahab, recommended. What comes next? Mubah, neutral. What comes after that? Makru, offensive, disliked, followed by the last one, haram. So if your parents tell you to do something that is ordinarily neutral, mubah, so let's say they have a nice purple jacket and they want you to wear this jacket outside. You don't really like this jacket, but they say we insist that you wear this jacket. Now ordinarily wearing the purple jacket is going to be what? Mubah. But now your parents said wear the jacket. It has elevated the mubah action to something recommended according to some of the fuqaha. Right? If they insist and they'll get upset if you don't do it, it could be wajib. Right? But if it's ordinarily mubah, the action itself, and they tell you to do it, then it becomes recommended for you to put on that purple jacket. If it's something ordinarily recommended and they tell you to do it, it would be elevated to wajib. So let's say, going back to charity. Charity is recommended, it's mandub. If your parents say, give that person charity, what is ordinarily recommended has now been elevated to wajib, obligatory. So this is very precise, the way the fuqaha describe it. They're not saying that the parents request that you wear the purple jacket automatically becomes wajib. There is a stage at which it could be depending on their level of insistence and how they would feel if you went against their request. If they would be hurt and angered by it, you have to do it. But if it's a mild request where if you don't want to, Okay, no biggie, but they're suggesting, hey, put this on. Then the mubah would become mandub, right? Now going to the, we talked about sunnah practices. You have the recommended things like duha, but they're at a lower level. Look at the higher level sunnahs. One does not have to obey their parents if they ask him or her to leave the emphasized sunnahs. Or if they ask him to leave the sunnah consistently. What's an emphasized sunnah? Okay, good. The, the, fajr, the two rak'ahs before fajr. The two, the two sunnah rak'ahs before fajr. What the Malikis call fajr and what uh, other ones call sunnahs. If your parents in some weird hypothetical scenario said, don't pray those two rak'ahs, would you obey them? No. The fuqaha say you don't have to obey them if they're asking you to leave what is an emphasized sunnah, nor do you have to obey them if they ask you to leave the sunnah consistently. I don't know of any parent that would do that, but let's, see, let's say that one of them says, I don't want you praying, I just want you praying Fajr, Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, and Isha. No sunnah prayers, none of the extra prayers, nothing. 
That's it. I just want you praying the fard. The fuqaha say there is no obedience in this. Because if, if you were to leave them once in a while because of a need, that's one thing. But their blanket command for you to leave all of the sunnahs constitutes a kind of change to the sharia on a uniform level, abandoning a whole segment of sharia legislated acts of worship. So you would not obey them in those kinds of things. So these are scenarios, and it's highly unlikely any of us would face these scenarios, but it shows you how the fuqaha look at the question of obedience in, with the body, you know, with the things that we do. Because things that we do can fall in one of those five legal rulings. And depending on what the parent is saying and what the action is, the rulings will change. So if they tell you to do something haram, you don't obey them because it's haram. If they tell you to do something that's wajib, you should already be doing it. So now you have two wajibs. You have the wajib that you should be doing already and the wajib of the parent's command. So if the, if the mother or father says, go pray fajr, that's the command of Allah to pray fajr and the command of the parents telling you to do the same. So if a child was to neglect fajr, they would be guilty of tarqus salat, leaving the obligation of prayer, and also dis, dis, uh, disobeying their parents. So, it's a serious matter. So we talked about the bir of the tongue, what we say, the bir of our body in obedience and its forms, and now we have bir of wealth. This is not as detailed. Basically, if the parents have no source of income, it's wajib on the children to support them. And that support is not a bare minimum support. It is to support them with enough to keep them at the status that they are worthy of based on the urf of the people, the custom of the people in their typical, normal, social, economic bracket that they're used to. It was recognized among uh, their locality, right? So this means that if the parents need financial assistance and they have no means of support, it becomes an obligation on the children to do that, but not at the bare minimum level. It has to be at a level that they're used to. So that's the bir of wealth. The bir of the heart is a very interesting one because just as Allah asks us to have bir with what we say and what we do, and with regard to our wealth, there's also a command to have bir in our hearts towards our parents. And that is because Allah says, وَقَضَى رَبُّكَ أَلَّا تَعْبُدُوا إِلَّا إِيَّا وَبِالْوَارِدَيْنِ إِحْسَانًا He says, and your Lord decrees that you worship none other than Him, and that you have ihsan towards your parents. Ihsan is centered in the heart. And the effects of that are found on the limbs and manifest on the tongue and so on. So ihsan towards parents includes the heart. In the verse that describes this command to have ihsan towards our parents, Allah concludes that verse by saying that your Lord is well aware, khabir, of what is in your hearts. Linking birul waridain to the heart. 
So the ulama say that this means that in our hearts we have bir by not harboring hatred, trying to remove any ill feelings and any resentment that may grow over time, to really work to remove those things or not allow them to arise in the first place. And if they have arisen, to try to remove them from the heart. Now, obviously, that can be really complicated because sometimes people have really complex family situations. Sometimes there are cases where the parents are overbearing or even abusive, and there's a toxic relationship between the parents and the children. But this is the ideal, to remove contempt and rancor from the heart if possible. And the ulama say that if a person does all the outward bir, but they have an inner hatred in their heart, then they're not properly fulfilling the duty of birr waridain. And that's really all I can say at this stage, because people have complex issues and sometimes toxic relationships that make this really difficult. But one should, in praying for their parents, also try to forgive them for their mistakes, because as you realize, when you become a parent, it's not easy, and you make mistakes, you mess up. And people don't always do the right thing, even if they're trying. So we have to try to remove that rancor from the heart. Now, another issue that has a bearing on way we, the way we are towards our parents is when we get conflicting orders. So let's say your mother says, stand up, and your father says, sit down. What do you do? Do you sit down or you stand up? Right? You float in the air? So, or you, you hover on the ground, cross-legged? I don't know what you do. Right? You, you either sit or stand. Now, the majority of the ulama say that if you get conflicting orders, if the mother says, sit down, and the father says, stand up, you sit down. You give precedence to the mother's command. Why is that the case? Because of the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ mentions that who has the most right of your excellent treatment? He says, your mother, then your mother, then your mother, and then your father. So there is a, a precedence here given to the mother. However, we have to be smart. Ideally, if you get conflicting orders, you want to see if you can fulfill both of them. And that takes careful siyasa, politics. And there's a really nice example of this mentioned in the works of fiqh. It's mentioned that a person went to Imam Malik, rahimahullah, and he said, my father is in Sudan. You know, back then when they said Sudan, they didn't mean the country Sudan. They meant the Sudan is in that broad region of East Africa, including Sudan, uh, Somalia, Habasha in general. That was Ardu Sudan. So he said, my father's in the Sudan. And he's written a letter, and he told me to come to where he is, but my mother is preventing me. So the mother, we presume, is in Medina, where he's at, Imam Madik. The man's there. The father's in Sudan. So what does he do? Does he stay in Medina because his mother doesn't want him to go? She doesn't want to be without her son, or does, she, or does he obey the father? Imam Madik, he says, do not disobey your mother. 
and obey your father. So he's basically saying, obey your father and don't disobey your mother. What's going on here? Imam Madik is very intelligent. What he's telling him is that you don't want to be put in a situation where you have to put the right of one over the other because that can create conflict between them. So by giving this answer, he's, notice he didn't say go to Sudan. And he didn't say stay with your mother. He said obey your father and don't disobey your mother. He's basically putting the ball in the court of this man, telling him you need to try and figure out a way to obey your father and obey your mother. So one of the great ulama of Mauritania, Imam Muhammad Mawlud, he spoke about the story and he said, this means that the son is to try his best to seek the pleasure of his mother when he travels to see his father, even if it means taking her with him so he can obey the father and not disobey her. So he take the mother along. There. Now, of course, someone's going to say, what if she doesn't want to go? Well, I don't have an answer for you. I would tell you, as Imam Madik says, obey your father and don't disobey your mother. You figure out a solution. I don't have one for you. You have to use siyasa here. But the idea is that you don't want to put it, be in a situation where you're giving preference to one in a way that's going to create any kind of conflict. But outside of that, all things considered, if you get a conflicting command, precedence is going to go to the mother. That's it. Now, ideally, the mother and the father are working in tandem in the household so that the command of one is the command of the other. The prohibition of one is the prohibition of the other. Because you know how children are, right? They ask the father for something. He says no. What do they do next? They go to the mother or vice versa. So you have to be on point. If the father, there's more details about these conflicting orders. Uh, if the father orders the son to forego marriage to a specific person, he's required to obey the order. This is a bitter pill for people to swallow. Imagine, you know, young man, you meet a girl, there's chemistry, you know, you're thinking about marriage, and then your father says, no. You're going to be brokenhearted if you were looking forward to getting married to that girl, but you obey the father. So let's say you get married, father was okay with it. You get married to the girl, but then maybe there's some kind of conflict and your father tells you, tells the son, I want you to divorce that girl. Go and divorce her right now. Does the son have to obey the father and go and divorce his wife? No. The majority of the ulama say no. You're not required to divorce your wife just because your father says so. Or your mother. The idea is that if the parents don't have a right to cause harm by preventing the son from earning a livelihood, how can they cause harm by trying to break up his family? That's a form of darar, it's a harm. They can't do, give a command that brings harm to their child. Now notice we're talking about the son here. I didn't say anything about daughters. 
There's a reason for this. And the reason is that once the girl gets married, no one, not even her mother, not even her father, has the right to ask her to seek a divorce from her husband. You'll remember last week we talked about how divorce is not in her hand, it's in the hand of the husband, but she does have means of seeking a release. It is not allowed for a mother or a father to tell the daughter to get out of the marriage. I mean, they can give that advice if it's a bad situation, but it's not an obligation on the daughter to obey her father or mother and seek a divorce from her husband. For the son, there was, there is something of a ikhtiraf, a difference of opinion among the fuqaha about whether or not they have to divorce the wife if they get a command to do so. But we relate the view that it's not obligatory to listen. But this is uh, not exactly a conflicting order, but it conflicts with one's life and what they're trying to do after they've been independent and gotten married and moved off. Another aspect of bir, and we've kind of moved on from the, the bir of speech, the bir of actions, the bir of wealth, and the bir of the heart. There's also bir towards our parents after their death. One of the painful realizations we make often uh, somewhat later in life is that our parents are mortal and they're going to die. Sometimes that is by them getting sick and us caring for them or us losing our mother or losing our father. We realize that they're going to pass. When you're young children, you don't tend to look at them in that way. You, you kind of think they're just there, you know. But a part of bir towards our parents is that we have bir towards them after they die as well. And the ulama say that you have bir towards your parents after they die by making dua for them and asking Allah to forgive them and to grant them jannah and to have mercy on them. Also, you show bir to them after death by fulfilling any promises that you made to them. If you made any promises to them, you said, I promise I'm going to do this and that in life. Just because they die doesn't mean you can renege on those promises. It is from bir that you commit to those promises. Likewise, it is from excellence towards your parents after death that you visit their graves. Particularly on Fridays, as the hadith mentions the recommendation to do so, it's also recommended to give charity on their behalf. And we keep good ties with their friends as well as their siblings and relatives, which is something we should be doing anyway. But it's a part of bir towards our parents that we maintain those positive relationships. Why is this relevant here? Think about it. Oftentimes, we meet our uh, aunts and uncles or, or cousins or this or that family member from the mother or father's side when we're, when we're with our mother or father. If our mother and father are not around, maybe we're not so inclined to visit them or inquire about them or even be that nice to them. But it's from the bir towards our parents that after they die, we keep up those good relations and inquire from time to time, even if we're not naturally inclined 
We're not naturally disposed to do that. We don't really have a lot of strong feelings towards them. It's out of loyalty to your parents that you do that. This is from Bir, according to the scholars. So we come now to the opposite. And the opposite won't be as detailed as what we just described. The opposite of Birrul Waridain is Ruqul Waridain. Ruquq is disrespect. It's a broad term. And it's basically defined as differing with them in a way that will cause anger. So if the differing does not cause anger, it would be a minor sin. And again, even that depends on the nature of the differing. Because sometimes there's gentle requests that don't come as commands, or there are gentle suggestions that don't take the level of obligations. So if we differ with our parents in a way that upsets them, that is uquq, and that is a kabira. It is a major sin. It is the second major sin mentioned after shirk billah. And that shows you the severity. Now, when we talk about anger, people in the modern day may read these texts and think, well, come on, you know, anger. People can be unreasonable in their anger. So what if my father has a really bad temper? Or what if my mother has a really short fuse and any little thing sets her off or sets him off? Does that mean I have to walk on eggshells around him? And that if I do the slightest thing to upset him, I'm guilty of a major sin? This is a legitimate concern people have. And they may hear these texts from the fuqaha and think, where does that leave me? Am I perpetually in sin because my parents or one of them has a really short fuse, a really bad temper? The answer is no. The ulama recognize this reality. You'll remember in the class on provision for the, the wife, the food, the clothing, the shelter. There was a term we kept using over and over again when we talked about what was the standard. What was that term? The orf. What is orf? Orf is the custom. What is recognized as normal, as standard in that time and place and society, right? So, although we're not using the word orf here, it's, it's similar because Imam Muhammad Mawlud says that this is anger, I mean the anger that constitutes uquq, uh, if you incur it. He says this is anger that is defined by the custom and not due to bad character or deficient intellect, as there are many people who are not, not satisfied by anything. I want to read this passage again. If you don't take anything from this class but the basics of Birruwaridain in this line, you you have everything you need. Ruquq is disrespect or incurring the anger of your parents. If that action of yours incurs their anger, that's ruquq and that's a major sin. But as Imam Muhammad Mawlud says, this anger is anger defined by the custom. What is customary and recognized as normal. 
and not due to bad character or deficient intellect, as there are many people who were not satisfied by anything. What does this mean for us? It means that if any of us has a parent with a short fuse, a bad temper, their bad temper does not transform our mild actions that annoy them into major sins. Because the threshold for uquq, or what incurs anger, is what, is what would incur anger for a normally balanced person. A person who is more or less emotionally balanced, whose personality is more or less the human norm in, in, in society. Their mizaj is more or less normal, right? If there's a spectrum here, it's, you know, it's in the middle. It's right in the middle, a little bit this way or that way, but it's in the middle. So if, our, if one of the parents is way off in left field, their anger does not mean that we're committing uquq. So bear that in mind. So if the child does something that would normally cause a reasonable parent to become angry, it would be uquq. Now the standard of reasonableness here is not determined by the parent. Maybe the parent has a bad temper and they think it's completely reasonable. The, reasonable, the reasonableness of this is what is recognized as more or less normal in society. Right? If the parent says, pick up that piece of lint on the floor, and it takes the child 10 seconds to do so, and then they start screaming, saying, why are you taking so long? You're this and that, and they start yelling and throwing things. Is that reasonable? By any standard, it's not reasonable. So if the child did that, that's not uquq. They're not guilty of a major sin. But if the parent is more or less even-keeled in their temperament, and the child, let's say the child curses at the mother or the father, if a child cursed at a mother or father, would that anger a more or less normal person, do you think? person who's normally balanced in the personality. Child says, you are this and this and this. Wouldn't they get angry? A reasonable person would get angry. That would be uquq. So the guideline is what would make a reasonable person angry, not a person who has bad character, where they have a really bad temper, or a deficient intellect. So we'll keep that in mind. You know, deficient intellect, when they mention this, it means they're so there's temper, a bad temper. You know, they fly off the handle for the smallest of things. But then you have those who, they, they're, they're basically, the Arabic term is qillatu aql or ahmaq or balid, balid al-dhihn. They're basically a simpleton person. Like they're, they have kind of a, a low IQ where they don't get certain social cues. So there's not a hard and fast rule, but they, Usually these go hand in hand, bad character and deficient intellect. The idea is that when you have a developed intellect, your emotions are, uh, are in a balanced way because you have the different faculties in yourself as a human being. Your faculty of anger, if it's developed uh, going to an excess, you lose your temper too quickly. If it's too deficient, you're a coward. 
If it's in the middle, right, you, you have that in the balance. Your, uh, your ifa, right, your, your temperance, your moderation, right? If that is balanced, you're moderate, you're reasonable, you think through things, you deliberate, you think about the future. If that's going too far to one extreme, you are conniving and plotting and uh, calculating and scheming. But if it's underdeveloped, you, you don't think about the consequences of what you do. You spin frivolously, you don't plan for the future, you don't take care of things, you just let things fall apart, right? So that's, the idea is that we have these personality traits where things need to be in the middle and not going to one extreme or the other. So the one who has a deficient intellect would be one who suffers from those things in one direction or the other. It's a really complex topic, but just think of a person who's, if we're rude or lightly rude, we'd say it's, it's like if the person's father was the village idiot, you know, you know that term, the village idiot, like they're just, they're very, we would just say they're dumb. They're just low IQ, they're dull, they don't get things, they're unreasonable. But they still have good character. Well, a person could be of low intelligence, but they have decent character. But, I mean, these are complex issues. It's not a hard and fast dhabit. You know, the language of fiqh is very precise. So this term would have to have a dhabit, a guideline to describe what it is and also to describe what it's not. So I'm not bringing you a dhabit, I should get you a dhabit, but more or less the person who has a deficient intellect is also going to have a bad character. It's possible that a person is lacking intelligence, but they're a good person, of course. Usually, when they mention bad character and deficient intellect together, they go hand in hand. It's because of their deficient intellect that they have a bad character, right? So we could take one of those out and it still makes sense. So we talked about the, the bir al-waridain with the limbs. The same thing goes for uquq. They look at the hands, the feet, the eyes, the ears, the heart, and the tongue. So these are often self-explanatory. Disrespect towards one's parents can be done with the hands by hitting them, striking them, throwing things at them, or even throwing one's ha hands in the air in disgust or clenching one's fists in front of them in a way that is expressing anger or disgust that's going to cause an emotional reaction out of them. That constitutes uquq, if it's something that causes them anger and alarm. There's uquq of the feet. If a person is to leaves their mother or father somewhere helpless, so they've walked away from them in their life, and they are in need of them. That is uquq of the feet. There's the uquq of the ears, which is to listen to others backbiting, speaking and gossiping about your parents without correcting them or telling them to, to stop. Because you're supposed to either walk away from that if you can't change it, or you get them to change the conversation. Uquq of the eyes, they say, is a hateful glare or glance towards one's parents. So if a person uh, purposely 
gazes on their mother or father in a way that elicits anger. You know the angry glare? Like, for some people that's their permanent resting face, isn't it? Right? They always look like they're angry, uh, and they're not. But this would be a purposeful one, where they glare, you know, out of anger. That could be uquq. Uquq um, of the heart, we talked about that. Hating, rancor, and so on. And the tongue, of course, harsh words, cursing, etc. I want to end this with a little reminder to parents. It's easy for parents to listen to all of these things and, and, and think, wow, you know, my child sure falls short of these things. And you should ask yourself, did I fall short of these things? Maybe you did. I think any honest person would say that they fall short. And even if a person has not fallen short in fulfilling the rights, no one has ever reciprocated the goodness of their parents. Meaning no one has ever done anything to basically compensate their parents for all the good they've done for them. There's no amount of money you can give your mother or father that will compensate for all of those sleepless nights and all of that care and concern through all of your years. There's nothing you could do, right? There's the hadith about the man who was carrying his mother on, in tawaf, right? That doesn't compensate it either. So there's two things here. Fulfilling the rights of our parents and reciprocating or repaying them in any way. It's difficult to fulfill the rights. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. But reciprocating is impossible. You can't do it. So no one should have the attitude that they've done everything they need to do and that they are they're okay. We've all neglected the rights of our parents. We've all done things sometimes inadvertently. So if you reflect on that, consider your own children, right? This is why when the ulama talk about birr waridain, they will often remind parents to facilitate birr waridain, to make it easy for their children to exercise birr waridain towards them. Don't make it hard for your children to be dutiful to you make it easy for them because when you make it easy for them you are making it easy for them to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you're making it easy for them to receive barakat blessings and to open doors of goodness you're making it harder for them to fall into things that are very destructive you're helping them in obedience to Allah ta'ala and Allah says Assist one another in bir and in taqwa. One of the great scholars of tafsir, Imam Ismail Haqqi, he says in his tafsir, Ruhul Bayan, that it's incumbent that parents not cause the child to perform uquq by dealing harshly with them. He's basically telling us, try not to trigger your own children's uquq by the way you are towards them. Be mindful of how you speak to them. It's hard. 
because they rile you up sometimes or they irritate you, but try to deal with them in a way that will not have them act in a way that is ruquq. He says, rather, they should aim in him doing bir, help them. Some of the people of knowledge have said, I have a son who for 30 years I have not given an order out of fear that he will disobey me and therefore deserve the punishment of Allah. When scholars mention these kinds of stories, they're not telling you that that's what you should do. They're, sh- they're showing you a very high standard. If you aim for that, you may get here. It's not that you should be like that, but it's giving you an idea of facilitating bir within your own children. How do you do that? Teach them about what bir waridain entails. Tell them of the, of the heavy right on them to obey their parents. They need to know these obligations. And they need to be reminded. Imam Abdul Wahab al-Sha'arani rahimahullah mentions in Al-Uhud al-Muhammadiyah that one of the things we learn from the way of the Prophet sallallahu is the need to constantly remind our children. As annoying as that can be at times to constantly remind them, we have to constantly remind them. And he talked about that in the context of reminding your children to eat with the right hand and to say Bismillah. Now, how many of you have children, don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have children that it feels like every time they pick up a bite to eat, you have to tell them to eat with the right hand or to say Bismillah. That's definitely the case for many children in their younger years until it becomes their own habit and they do it without having to be told. Well, the same thing goes for the other obligations. And the same thing goes for Birr Waridain, to remind them and to assist them by giving, giving them, or rather not giving them, uh, unreasonable demands, not putting unreasonable demands on them. Consider the time and place they're in and the challenges they're going through. Also, to facilitate Birr Waridain, the ulama say, you should relinquish your rights at times. Meaning, yes, I am the father or I am the mother and this is my right, but I'm gonna let this one go. I'm gonna relinquish that because I don't want my child to end up slipping into uquq by my demand that I can just let go. You're facilitating this. Likewise, if they have disobeyed you or disrespected you in a way, you know, you should be able to forgive them, right? You should forgive them. And by forgiving them, hopefully they are avoiding the bad consequences of uquq in this life and the next. And another way to facilitate this is to find the right length of rope. What does that mean? Uh, Some of you have heard this from me a few times. It's something I like to go back to from time to time. It's a statement from Sayyidina Muawiyah radiallahu anhu. Now, you know Imam Muawiyah was a leader, he was a ruler at a time, and there were lots of challenges, lots of strife during his, his time, uh, and after his time especially. But he has this really wise saying about leadership, and it applies to parents. He says that the ruler, in this case the parent, the ruler has to have a rope that is not too long, or a rope that is too short. 
Think about a horse or a camel. If you are taking that horse or camel with a rope and it's too short, what's going to happen to the, to the camel or horse? Right? You have, maybe it's three feet and it's tied around the horse's neck and you try to tie it to a post. What's going to happen to that horse or camel? It's going to be yanking at it because it's so, there's so little room for it to move in. It only has three or four feet to move in. It's tied to a post. It's going to be very uncomfortable. By the same token, if the rope is too long, you tie one end around the horse, and then you tie the other end to a post, but the rope is 40 feet long, what's going to happen to the horse? Think about this. Like you got the post, a 30-foot rope, 40-foot rope. Is the horse just going to stay by the post? It's going to make a mess. It's going to get wrapped around the post or another post or this or that. It's going to knock things over. So it's not fully controlled, and it's going to wrap around other things. So he's saying that as a leader, when you are a ruler over people, the rope can't be so short that it's smothering, and it can't be so long that they get into all sorts of messes. You have to find the right length of rope. So using the analogy of the rope, of course, this is uh, figurative, right? Majaz, like figurative rope. We're not saying a literal rope for your child. But the idea is it can't be so short that it's smothering to the point that they want to just run away and taste freedom as soon as they get an inkling of it out of your house. But at the same time, you don't want it to be so long that they end up getting tied up and wrapped around things, choking them. You have to have just the right amount. And that's going to require a lot of siyasa, a lot of intelligence and wisdom. And you may not always get it right, but if you ensure that the rope is always too short, you're also going to see some uquq and some rebellion. If it's too long, you may see the same thing, but you want to make sure it's just right. Uh, and lastly, train them well and help them develop as adults and then treat them as adults when they're acting as adults. So it's good to treat them as adults as soon as you can and not delay that and treat them as a child up until their late teens. Treat them as an adult as soon as they are showing signs of maturity and responsibility. Give them tasks. This helps them. And lastly, you got to pray for your kids. you got to pray for your kids. Forgive your children. Pray for them. Ask Allah to guide them because they are their own people and they're going to have to make their own decisions and they're not always going to be decisions that we like. So we have to ask Allah to guide their decisions. We try our best. We use the means. And we ask Allah to guide them. And it's all in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So inshallah, I hope this uh, module was informative. This covers everything that's basically followed Ayn to know about how we are towards our parents. And then a little bit of extra knowledge about that topic as well. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Any questions? Now, if you, ask, if you ask questions that are overly detailed and I sense they're not, that they're actual personal questions or they're too, they're too detailed, I don't want to give super nuanced answers because everyone has their own 
situations they may be dealing with with their children or other children they know. And if it's a really complex issue, it's good to talk about that privately. But general questions will open the floor for. Lengthen your own rope. Lengthen, yeah, just because you don't want to say something disrespectful, you don't want them to say something disrespectful. Yeah. Well, when I talked about the rope, I meant that particularly in the context of parents and children in the same household. You know, when the children are grown up and out of the household, I don't think there's a rope in the same way. We're we're on our own, and we have to just make sure that our interactions are uh, appropriate. So, what applies in your question? is the parameters of keeping the ties with family so that we're keeping the ties but not in such a way that we may spend so much time that those things may be triggered. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah, tomorrow, uh, next week's class is all about family relations in a more broader sense, inshallah. Any other questions? Mm-hmm. In the same person, uh, the first question is uh, are the, rule, uh, the rulings of the rights uh, owed to the parents, uh, are they owed to uh, mother in laws and father in laws when one gets married? Not in the same way. It is from respect of one's spouse to treat them well, but it, you don't have to obey your in law the same way you have to obey your mother and father. This is actually a somewhat complex question. So the question is, I'll put it in my own words here. Uh, the, the questioner is asking about if a parent tells the son not to grow the beard, does the son listen to the mother? and shave the beard? Or does he disobey the mother and keep the beard? Well, of course, this goes back to the question about the hukum on keeping a beard. And it also involves the question of the parents having a particular opinion on the matter that may conflict with the opinion of the son. So there, there, there's, there are some complexities here. It's not as clear-cut as many would think. Many would think the beard is wajib, therefore you don't obey your mother if she tells you to shave it off. Clear-cut, end of story. And they wouldn't be entirely wrong to think that, but there are some complexities. Let's say the, the mother or the father they are, let's say they're, let's say they're Shafi'i, right? What is the ruling on the beard in the Shafi'i madhab? The ruling on the beard in the Shafi'i madhab, or 
to be more accurate, the ruling on cutting the beard or shaving the beard, the one, the view is that to shave it would be makru, and to keep a beard is to keep anything that is called a beard. So if what you have is called a beard, a lihya, then you are fulfilling that obligation or that emphasized sunnah, right? So if the parents are shafiri, for instance, they may say to the son, we're not telling you to shave the beard off, we're just telling you to trim it. And that is a valid view within the Shafi'i school. You have a beard. You have fulfilled that obligation. But the son, what if the son is Hanafi? Because <laughs> in the Hanafi school, it's the strictest school when it comes to the beard. They say the beard is wajib. And they say it is haram to cut past uh, anything less than a fistful. That's the Hanafi madhab. So if the son says, I'm a Hanafi, I don't want to do that. And the parents say, well, the father says, well, you know, in this house, we're Shafi'i. I'm a Shafi'i. I'm telling you, I want you to trim it. What does he do? I'm sure that if he goes to this mufti, one mufti is going to say, disobey your parents and keep the beard. But do so wisely and tell them, try to convince them. Another mufti may say, because this is an issue where there is a legitimate difference of opinion among the fuqaha, there's a khiraf, your father or your mother basically remove that difference of opinion by picking which view to follow. That's another view. So I think it's contextual. I don't, I, don't, I don't like the idea of giving a blanket answer to these kinds of questions because let's say, let's suppose this, this is a, a young man and he's in Pakistan and everyone's Hanafi or some Ahl Hadith too, but they, they're just as strict on the matter. In that society, for the parent to say, cut your beard, is recognized that they're telling you to do something that's haram according to the recognized method of the land. It's not like you're in a place where you have multiple madhahib. So I think it's a, it can be complex. And you know, I got this question a few weeks ago. A young man said, what do I do if I'm growing up my beard and I'm getting flack from my grandparents? Because they grew up in a period where there's a lot of negative associations with the beard. Oh, you know, you're this and a that, you're, you know, you're a, a, a fundamentalist or whatever, and they're telling me to, to trim it or to shave it off. What do I do? I said, well, you don't have to listen to your grandparents the way you listen to your parents. So just try to be nice to them and live the sunnah in your character so they don't think about that anymore. They see that your embrace of the sunnah is not an embrace of external aspects of the sunnah with a corresponding neglect of the character of the sunnah. Let them see the sunnah in your appearance as well as your character and maybe they come around right so i think that's a complex question and it will depend on the person and the time and the place and there's some usuri issues here and this is why fatwas are not meant to be just taken off from the internet like oh i i looked up this fatwa this fatwa says this how do you know that fatwa applies to your case how many times have you had a question in your mind 
something that's going on in your own life. There are certain, there are certain details and factors. You try to type in a, uh, in the Google search a fatwa that would answer those particular factors in your life. You don't find a fatwa that answers it exactly, but you find something close to it. That fatwa may not apply to your case because there may be details that are in your life that are not addressed in the fatwa online. So you have to be very careful. Some fatwas are clear cut. Some have nuances and details. Um, and then there's factors that you have that may not be addressed in those. So now we're going into some other topic now, but that's, you know, on a practical level, you have to reason with your parents if you want to do that, because we all recognize that growing the beard would be virtuous if it's for the sake of obeying the Prophet So if they're telling you one thing, you should try to convince them in a nice way. And if you're in a certain locality, go to a local mufti, explain the situation and all the details and get their advice and try your best to obey Allah and to then obey your parents. Wallahu a'lam. Uh, what about like, in terms of like, I guess like your life path, because sometimes parents have very strong opinions on what you should do you like for your job or what you should study and so on and so forth. I don't know if I want to touch that one with a 10-foot pole. Why aren't you going into the medical field? Yeah, it's a tough question. Um, are you disobeying your parents if you go into some field and don't go into medicine and they want you to go into medicine? I don't think that a single fatwa is going to answer every single person you have to have an honest conversation with your parents. I, I know a brother whose parents wanted him to go into medicine. They prepared him for that. They pushed him to that. And as he was getting ready to finish you know, uh, college, um, high school and go into university, he had to have a sit down with his mother and father, a very honest conversation. He did it maturely. He said, listen, I want to obey Allah. I want to fulfill your haqq. But I'm also my own human being. And I also have my own aspirations that are independent of your aspirations for me. And I recognize that you want what is good for me. And I recognize that if I went in that life path, it would make you very, very happy. But because of my love for you and my desire to be obedient and not be in conflict, I also have to be honest with you so I don't have resentment in my heart. That is not my life's calling. It's not something I feel called to. And I ask for your help and support to obey you and to also fulfill my life path. I'm, I'm re recreating this conversation that's not exactly how it went. This is how it was told to me by this brother. And by having that honest face-to-face -face maturely, alhamdulillah, the parents weren't exactly thrilled about the new career choice, but as they saw it made him very happy, 
and they saw he was very fulfilled in that career path, they came around to it and saw its benefit, and now they're very happy with it. And that person, Alhamdulillah, he's come to this community twice and benefited our community with that knowledge that he learned by going against the initial wishes of his parents. But he had to have that honest conversation. It's not a fatwa, but that's, that's advice. Um, on, a, on the technical side of things, you know, if it's, if it's something that the person can't do, it's causing them harm in, in a verifiable way, you know, they have to find a way to balance between finding their own life path and making their parents happy. And this is why we dedicated the last bit of this class to just speaking to us as parents to not be so unreasonable to think that we know it all about what is best for our children in their career choice. Obviously, if they say they want to be a cashier at a casino, we know what's best for them by saying that's a bad idea. That's not what we mean. We mean there's a life path that's generally good, and here's a life path, a career path for our son that's, that we like, and we want to insist on them taking that, even if it means their unhappiness and unfulfillment. Those things get buried. And if you don't give them that chance to be honest with you, then they're just going to bury those resentments, and it's going to come out eventually. You know, they're going to be very resentful, and you know, may Allah help them, and may Allah help parents. So this uquq and birr al-walidayn, it is something of a two-way highway. We want to facilitate it for them by not putting up obstacles to their life to make birr al-walidayn harder than it already is. So, it's not a fatwa, but... There was a question I asked of Mama. There was? In August, when person, a parent actually asked that they want their son to be in the medical field and he wants to do some religious studies. And, and I think I told them off a little bit. Yeah, I think I remember that one. Yeah, so there's a question, I think, yeah, I forgot about that one. A parent had asked about their child getting into the medical field. Uh, they want that for them, and then the child says it's not for them. And it wasn't a question, I remember. It was a request. It was basically, please tell my son <laughs> that he has to go into the medical field to keep me happy, and something like that. And uh, I pushed back gently on that notion, right? So, a word of advice to any uh, young adults out there, if you feel that you know, there's a career path that you want, and it's a good one, and you're feeling pressure to take another, and you don't know how to bring this topic up, you can always come to me, and I'll try. You know, Shafara, if I agree with you, then maybe I'll reach out to your parents and try to talk to them, smooth things over. Always think about third parties who could you know, give advice to your parents uh, in a good way. Alhamdulillah.